I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. My guest this episode is Paul Meacham. Paul has had a long and distinguished career in the orchestral management business and he reflects upon this career and what he's learned. And, perhaps more importantly, what we can all learn about the crazy world of running an orchestra. Paul, it's really great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. And I think before we dive a little more in detail to to the uh, position you have at the moment, perhaps you can tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in the States, because you're not American originally, are you? No, I'm not, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. And uh, I think we both moved from the UK to the US at a similar time, but my story is a little different. I mean, I grew up in, in Bath in, in southern England and uh, music was always in the household. So I played piano and violin. I went to university to, to study music, um, but I was never good enough to, to play professionally, either on the piano or violin. And I got first involved in uh, my first job. Two jobs were in music publishing in London, um, the, most of that time for Boozy and Hawks. And I enjoy, while I enjoyed it very much, I really missed being much closer to the, if you like, the coal face of music making. And uh, that led me into orchestra management, uh, first at the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra in the late 80s under the wonderful Libor Peshek. Um, and we celebrated the 150th anniversary of the orchestra at the time. So uh, lots of uh, really exciting things there. And then I got my first opportunity as, as, uh, as the manager of the London Sinfonietta um, for six years. And that was a wonderful time. I, I, my, I think I'd always had a love of contemporary music, even from my university days, but that blossomed during my publishing days at Boozy and Hawks, and uh, I think uh, put me on a good path for, um, you know, running a contemporary music ensemble, which is what I did for six years. And uh, during that time, I got to know a lot of composers and uh, some of them I still um, stay in touch with today, like John Adams. And uh, I think as a result of those contacts, um, I was approached by the San Francisco Symphony in the late 90s to uh, uh, to see if I'd be interested in becoming their general manager, which is the number two position. And uh, I'd always um, fancied the idea of working in the United States. I mean, the British orchestral scene is, by comparison, I mean, there's some wonderful orchestras, but they're small. The, the market is small. There's not that many job opportunities. And, uh, of course, the United States is much larger and a lot more orchestras. Plus, I really uh, had missed out um, on working for a very seasoned, experienced uh, orchestra manager, uh, you know, CEO, and I had that opportunity with Peter Pastreich and uh, first in San Francisco and then with Deborah Border at the New York Philharmonic. So those are my first two jobs in the United States before I, uh, since then, have been essentially the CEO of several different orchestras. So, Paul, you said a little earlier you missed being at the coalface, if, if you didn't use that phrase, I am. Um, but does that mean that, that when you're in a management role, you like to be overseeing or at least have a hand in the artistic planning as well? Well, I'm very careful to 
um, you know, when I was at the London Sinfonietta, I was very much um, involved in the artistic planning. I mean, I essentially worked with the the principal conductor or the, the guest conductors on the programming. But at large symphony orchestras, as you know, there's usually somebody on the team who's dedicated, you know, artistic administrator, vice president of artistic planning, whatever the title is, working closely with the music director. So, you know, over the years, I've learned to just, um, you know, perhaps help sort of uh, in the very early conversations of what the big picture themes of a season might be or, you know, the general direction. Uh, but uh, then I st really step back and, uh, you know, unless I'm asked. Um, and I sometimes am because they know I have a music background. So it's a fine balance. But I think, um, you know, if you if you step too much into the weeds, you know, the people whose job it is to do the programming kind of say, well, <laughs> why don't you do it? If you, you know, so mm -hmm. I've been, and to be honest, it's time consuming. And I, you know, in the CEO jobs, you've got a lot of fundraising to do uh, a lot of other things to do as well. So, um, you know, it's a balance, but I, I, uh, you know, I, I will contribute ideas when, when asked, or if, if there's something new that someone, a composer or a publisher approaches me and I, you know, I, I forward it, um, but I try not to, to, to actually get down into the, into the weeds of program by program planning. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as well. You said that conductors and other administrators know you have a music background. I would have thought that's essential if you're going to be passionate about this industry and let's face it in your role you have to be passionate about it the music director has to be passionate about what they're trying to produce what they're trying to create so isn't it essential that you have uh, a music background uh, well i think so i mean there are some instances where uh, leaders have not had uh, as strong a music background as as most do um with varying degrees of success. But I think, you know, for me, I can only speak for myself. Um, it's the music that, you know, brought me into this sector and, and it's the music that keeps me there and I've never left it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I love the contact with musicians. I, I, I love what makes them tick. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things where once you've, once you've found your, your milieu, if you like, um, I've never wanted, wanted to leave it. But, you know, um, you'd have to ask other CEOs, uh, you know, what their perspective is. But most of the most of my colleagues that I know are either were former professional musicians or certainly grew up, um, you know, loving music and having some, you know, fairly deep uh, interaction with music from an early age. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit here and say I think it's it's really essential because uh, that's the only way of attracting the right sort of talent. I mean, who on earth would want to get involved in running an orchestra if they didn't love the product? It's one of the most stressful occupations I can imagine. And the the pressures on you are from so many different constituents. Um, hats off to to you guys who managed to make it work for yourselves. I think it's, uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. And also, that from my perspective, the challenges that are thrust in front of you are so demanding, so exacting, and have such critical consequences that if you had a similar sort of role in the for-profit world, you'd be paid about five times as much at least. 
Well, no, firstly, Andrew, as a conductor, I, I, I thank you for being so empathetic towards CEOs. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's not always the case. Um, you know, I remember um, a board member when I came to the Baltimore Symphony, there was a wonderful man by the name of Gar Richland who had been a board oh, member yes. and became an interim you remember him. I remember. Uh, an, an interim CEO during the period of time between my predecessor and when I started. And he, I remember him picking me up from the airport as I arrived. And, you know, there was such a look of relief on his shoulders. And he said, this is, <laughs> this is the hardest job I've ever done, you know, for just the nine months. And I, I'm so glad you're here. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, he put, personally wanted to pick me up from the airport to make sure that I, <laughs> I was here. So I, I, I think if you're not from our world, um, there are unique challenges, which, you know, uh, somebody who's grown up in a, in a more, you know, sort of business environment uh, would find challenging to understand. And I think a lot of it has to do with relationships with, with musicians and artists and understanding what makes them tick. Um, and as I said at the beginning, although I never re really played very much professionally, I, I've been through enough schooling of, of what it takes to be uh, a, a professional musician that um, I, I, th I feel I understand what makes musicians tick. And I think if you don't have have that in your DNA, uh, it does make it harder. I think as well, people who aren't part of the industry uh, find it very difficult to understand why it can be such um, a divisive place and at times it, it really is and in your role you have to be an advocate for everybody and um, it's not always every colleague every board member every musician who sees that with the same sort of degree of understanding so you have to have the patience of a saint and the backbone of steel to 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 uh, to do the job. Andrew, you're you're at it again. You're being nice to CEOs. What's what's come over you? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I, always you, nice to CEOs. <laughs> I, look, I mean, I think um, you know musicians. Um, I I think in any business, and this is no exception, and I call it a business, but you know, it's it, obviously it's much more than that. It's, as you said earlier, I mean, it, for me, it's a passion. Uh, but in any business, um, you have to be, you have to have vision, but you also have to be a great listener. Um, because, you know, as you said, there are a lot of con different constituents. There's trustees, there's musicians, staff, the audience, volunteers, and everyone, you know, is usually not shy in giving their opinion on how things should be. And I think, you know, what uh, people rally around is a, a compelling vision for the future, hope um, and transparency in communications. I mean, I, you know, I remember during the Baltimore days when during the Great Recession of 2008-9, those were very, very challenging times. But dialogue was always very open between management and, and the musicians. And, we, and although, you know, we asked the musicians to take take pay cuts, I think pretty much every orchestra around the country did. It was, you know, we also jointly mounted a, a big fundraising campaign with the help of the musicians. And so I think, you know, there are ways in which um, you can you can try to keep everyone on board, even during very difficult times, if you've built up a level of, of trust and and 
you know, uh, straightforward communication. I'm not saying it's easy because it isn't. Um, but, you know, that's always been my MO is to try and keep the, the communication channels open. You've already mentioned your time in Liverpool, London, San Francisco, New York, Baltimore. That's that's quite a, a portfolio of orchestras. Um, there are more as well, aren't there? Well, I spent three years running the Seattle as the CEO of the Seattle Symphony before Baltimore, uh, and then since Baltimore, uh, the Utah Symphony and Opera, and now. Um, I'm enjoying uh, a less stressful time um, after 35 years in this business, a less stressful time in Tucson, Arizona. It's not, the or orchestra is wonderful, punches well above its weight for a, you know, a community this size. Um, and there are still, you know, in microcosm, some of the same challenges you get with much larger budget orchestras. Um, but, you know, there aren't three or four concerts a week every week of the season. There's no summer season. So it, it's, a, it's what I was looking for um, if I was going to stay managing orchestras because really, um, you know, I, the life-work balance is, is critical in any, any profession, but there's always a danger, of, uh, and you've alluded to the stresses earlier on, there's always a danger of just letting it get on top of you. And I just, I just I'd had it had enough of, of uh, working with these very large budget orchestras where you really never have an opportunity to switch off. It's 24 seven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't want to give my friends here in Tucson the impression that I'm sort of <laughs> working part time because I'm not, but it, <laughs> but it is, a, but it is a better life work balance. Well, that's lovely to hear. Uh, what I'd like to move on to as well from all those different communities. And as you say, over 30 years in those communities is you must have uh, seen both the similarities and the differences in both audiences and the communities in general. And are there any aspects of those communities that you think come to the fore in different places to be more supportive of the orchestra? Um, goodness, that's a broad, broad question. Yeah, I just kept rambling then. I'm sorry, yeah. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think audiences respond... I mean, audiences respond to vision, and I've used that word a couple of times already. I mean, take take Baltimore, for example. I mean, Marin also had a particular vision for, you know, if you like, uh, being more outward going in terms of the orchestra's relationship with the community. And she started the Orchids program and other things. So people rallied around that. Now, you know, um, I know because when I arrived, uh, Yuri Tibukanov had only just uh, finished as music director there. There were others in the community who wanted Baltimore to be, you know, the Cleveland Orchestra or, you know, just a, and, and with a musician like Yuri Tibukanov who was focused much more on purely the music making on the stage rather than the relationship in, with, with the community necessarily. Um, you know, there are always going to be different you know, sectors of the community want different things for their orchestra. And it's very hard to find the right balance, um, you know, that, that will satisfy everyone. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think in general, I mean, this is a sweeping generalization. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are communities within communities. So whether it's Baltimore, Seattle, New York, or wherever, wherever I worked, uh, there are people who who are purely interested in the the work on stage, and you know maybe 
you know, deep music lovers themselves. And then, you know, that might be your most concentric, small, you know, the, the center of your concentric circles of support. And, uh, but there's a much broader audience that uh, for whom uh, the music is important, but there are other things that matter as well, whether it's, you know, how the, how the orchestra serves the community in which it lives. I mean, and I think, you know, wherever the community that I've lived, I've found that those concentric circles exist to very much the same degree. Um, and uh, it's, I think, the role of an orchestra, after all, it's a community-supported organisation. It's the role of an orchestra to try and satisfy all of those communities, mm -hmm. how difficult as that is, both the, the hardcore music lovers, um, as well as those people who see the orchestra not just as a, as a provider of high quality music, but also as, as, as a, you know, supporting the needs of the community in different ways. I think as well, most communities have um, an element of civic pride in their orchestra. I mean, gone are the days of competition between orchestras with conductors and record labels and stuff like that. Uh, but I think that a lot of cities love their orchestras because of what they say about the nature of their community. Uh, and um, some of those cities you've been in are much more affluent than others. Uh, Liverpool, I would have thought, was perhaps the least affluent of those, if I can make that, that generalisation. Do you find it's important to try and distinguish between the different levels of support, uh, the different strata of support within the community, or is it really just for everyone? Um, I think ultimately it is for everyone, but of course you have different strategies for different sectors of the community. I, I mean, most orchestras, I, I would wager probably all orchestras, are involved to some greater or lesser degree with programs in, in schools. Uh, and that's one way to reach um, you know, people across the whole community um, through the children of those families. And so um, you know, I think that's an important component. I mean, obviously, you're hoping to instill a love of music in youngsters um, because they're a potential future audience. So there's that. But also, um, you're also fulfilling a need within the public school system in this country in particular, which is which is starved of funding for music and arts education. You're fulfilling a need to provide those initial kind of um, creative opportunities for students through the arts. And so, um, you know, I think that that is a very essential component of, of, of an orchestra in a community's service to the community and, and is perceived, if it's well communicated and well done, perceived by the broadest, you know, by the broad community as, as essential and, and, you know, a good reason why the community would have pride in their orchestra. But I think, you know, um, I think it can extend to all manner of things. I remember in Baltimore, and you know, I keep coming back to Baltimore partly because I was there for ten years, and because it's where you, you and I first met. And um, uh, you know, Baltimore, the uh, a, a, groups of musicians played, you know, at the Super Bowl or uh, or at you know the Thanksgiving Day football game. You know, the opportunities to combine, you know, a high quality arts organization with you know the leading sports team in uh, a leading sports team in the in Baltimore uh, also uh, connects two different facets of the community and and people you know even if they 
weren't that aware of of their orchestra beforehand they they have become aware and realized what a what a jewel we have so i think you know there are different ways in which uh people can perceive uh their orchestra but i i think you you hit on a great word pride i remember when i was in new york and i you know in the days before uber i used to get a cab from the airport into into manhattan and uh, invariably i would strike up a conversation with 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 a cabbie and um you know when they learned that that's, I worked for the New York Philharmonic, uh, they said, oh, that's fantastic. And I said, oh, have you been? He said, no, no, but we know we have a great orchestra in New York City. And this, this was the cabbie. So, I mean, you know, I'd like every cabbie in every city to say that about their orchestra. <laughs> but what about the classical music world in general? Um, you know, I'm, I'm 61 now. And since, since I was a child, people have been telling me that the classical music business is dying and it's still here but how has it changed paul how has it changed in your eyes well it's changing all the time um you know it's not dying that's the good news <laughs> i mean the music is, remains great and and it's not just the the music of the last two or three centuries but the music that's been written today and will be written you know in the future so it's not dying i think um what might be you know in decline is the way in which people engage with with what we do um you know if you go back a hundred years when people arrived at the concert hall in their, <laughs> their horse and carriage you know i mean uh, the whole whole concert was sold out on subscription by wealthy people today subscription uh is, is as a as a purchasing model is somewhat in decline in the traditional sense. Um, people are busier. They don't want to buy eight or 10 concerts like they did 20, 30 years ago. They might, they want greater flexibility. They don't want to make a commitment nine months in advance of the very first concert of the following season. So I think orchestras are, I say struggling, maybe the wrong word, but are needing to be more innovative about um, how to create the flexibility that the consumer themselves is asking for. And you see it in other, you know, other businesses, whether it's Netflix or, you know, uh, other kinds of streaming services that, you know, there are different models out there that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. And we're still clinging on to, you know, a model that's been around for 40, 50 years. And so I think we've, you know, as a, as a, as a sector, we've got to figure out how to evolve and make it as convenient because convenience is very important in this day and age we're in a sort of you know a one-click business environment these days so how do we make it as convenient as possible uh to uh you know to 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 to, to engage to get people's commitment to you know a number of concerts and um because I think the art form, once once you're there, um, the quality of the performance um, is, you know, probably better than there's ever been. The other thing I would say is that, you know, engagement between the stage and the audience um, has to improve. Now, you, Andrew, are a fantastic communicator uh, with your audience and you introduce pieces and, you know, you, um, you make it fun. And, you know, I... I I would say that those are essential skills for every single conductor and you know some some conductors are natural at it and others have have to look, work at it more but i think 
you know, uh, the, um, I think it was the Philadelphia Orchestra that years and years ago referred to that sort of invisible curtain between the stage and the audience. And that curtain has to, has to go away. People um, are coming to concerts without the background. Perhaps music wasn't in the home. It's certainly not much in the schools anymore. Um, we have to, as, as you know, orchestras, uh, whether it's the artists or the people behind the scenes, have to uh, work harder to make those connections for people because there's nothing worse than feeling um, stupid, you know, or not knowing what to do or not understanding. And nobody's explaining it to me. Well, I'm not going to come back. But we don't so have to I dilute think... the art form, do we, Paul? We don't have to... No. to dilute the quality of what we present and we don't have to be so, ashamed so of anything. No, you're still going to do the Beethoven Symphony, but you'll say a few words beforehand about it or, or there'll be some pre, uh, you know, prior online, you know, really inviting content about it. I think it's just putting the music that we play into some kind of context for people because people don't have the context anymore. That, you know, education has changed. And, um, you know, uh, they, we, we don't grow up in households where a piano is an automatic, where it might have been 50, 70 years ago. So we just have to adapt to that. But I think the music itself, that doesn't need to be diluted. It's, it's just the context in which it's presented has to change. Do you think people confuse the terms context and relevance or get the two into a situation where they, they, they uh, expect one to lead to the other? Um, well, I think they're little. The two terms are a bit different. I mean, um, oh, I agree. Relevant relevance uh, is a much broader term, I think, and I think, you know, you can talk about relevance in the in the broader role of an orchestra within the community. If you know, if uh, and we talked earlier about orchestras being involved in schools programs and other community based programs, that's relevance. You know, and funders in particular foundations individuals love to see an orchestra connecting with the broader issues that a community um, is concerned with that's an orchestra being relevant um, you know doing um, outdoor concerts free outdoor concerts in a park uh, attracting people who otherwise would never come indoors to a concert that's increasing your relevance context I think, you know, in the more narrow definition we were talking about is really how, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you perform music, f f uh, which uh, we have to assume a vast majority of the audience is not as familiar with it, familiar with as, you know, the performers are, and perhaps as audiences might have been 30, 40 years ago. And I think we just uh, have been slow, to be honest, to uh, to to create context for the pieces the music that we perform to attract new audiences and you know uh, make sure that first timers have a great time and come back because you know, they understood and appreciated what they heard and saw. So if you had to choose an age group that you spend the dollars on to attract that new audience. Which one is it? Is it older people with more disposable income theoretically and, and more time? Uh, people who are in their mid-twenties or people much younger than that? That's an impossible question to answer because we, we should be trying to attract all audiences of all ages. Uh, but, you know, you, 
so in any given year, you might change your priorities. Um, but I do think when you look historically at the audiences that are attending um, symphony concerts on a regular basis, um, if you want to, which tend to be audiences in their you know 50s, 60s, and 70s, you, you'd you'd want to look at the generation immediately before that. So, you know, in today's terms, it would probably be the Gen X generation and maybe the upper millennials generation, um, because they're the people who you know may already be getting close to children leaving for college, um, and. Um, having more free time, uh, I, I think it's not less than much disposable income. It's time, um, and um, but you know, as I said to you, I, I you, we should be focusing on all audiences, uh, and uh, because you just never know um, when you might connect with somebody, whether they're in their twenties or, or in their eighties. So at the end of the day, what are your biggest concerns about the, the future of the orchestral business? I think classical music is going to be there forever. There'll always be an audience for it, even if it's just people listening to music at home. But the industry per se, what's your biggest fear? Well, um, biggest fear. I, you know, I think orchestras, they've always, orchestras have always been kind of three or even four-legged stools you know you've got the the the, the the orchestra which is the heart of an orchestra of course you've got the the trustees you've got the staff and of course you've got the audience and uh under times of stress you know those those four legs don't necessarily um you know perhaps it's the wrong analogy but the four constituents don't necessarily all act in concert with each other, and I think my fear is that, um, you know, the the, um, the the communication can break down, um, and you know we, we're all living somewhat on a thread, you know, or you know it's a shoestring. We're we're always close to you know, a deficit or we're always close to, you know, if there's a recession, suddenly we have to reopen, you know, contracts. And um, I think, you know, maybe there's always going to be that tension between, you know, artistically wanting to push ourselves forward, perhaps sometimes beyond what we can afford. But I think a lot of it has to do with the um, just simply as uh, a complicated business in which we're in the constituents just aren't on the same page to use that phrase um, enough of the time and um, and I think as a result um, you know the organization isn't necessarily it's often fighting itself um, rather than um, you know leading from the front uh, in a unified way so I you know I I don't think that's any different than it has been for the last, you know, eighty or ninety years. Uh, but I worry that, you know, as orchestras, particularly the large orchestras, have and and you know have grown very large, um, that uh, they become big businesses in themselves, and um, the um, you know the 
uh, I think <clears throat> there's always a danger, particularly in those large, you know, large staffs, large orchestras, large boards, uh, that um, you know communication gets siloed and it's not there's not enough um, work time spent on ensuring that uh, as an organization we're all you know going in the right direction so you know i would say that that's probably my biggest fear and it's it's what i've seen i don't think anything's changed in that regard over the last 30 40 years and the time i've been in this business um and you know most of the vast majority of orchestras are still here so maybe an unfounded fear but uh it's certainly my desire to see uh, greater harmony within within um, these institutions. That being said, Paul, what do you find least enjoyable or the least pleasurable aspect of your job? Well, I guess because I've been in this business now for 35 years, I think that is sort of an answer in itself that I, I, I really have always enjoyed it. Uh, of course, there are times when it's it's gotten harder and... Um, you know, sometimes the politics of dealing with, you know, internal situations, uh, the board, the, the staff, the orchestra can be can be very wearing. Um, you know, earlier on in my career, I, I, I was perhaps fearful or I just wasn't sure I could be a, an effective fundraiser. But the more you do it, the more um, the more actually I, I enjoy it. And, and um, because it's a great way to engage with donors who you know, are interesting people and, and passionate about your orchestra. So um, I enjoy that. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've often thought that, um, you know, at the moment that I really wasn't enjoying it, I would stop. And um, here I am still doing it after all these years. So I think that that kind of says it. Well, Paul, it's been wonderful catching up with you, chatting with you and hearing all your thoughts and perspectives not only on your career, but the orchestral world. Um, a final question for you, one I ask all of my guests. What's the one thing in life that you're most proud of? Goodness, why, well, it has to be my children, I think. Um, it's not a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I have two beautiful children, and... Um, you know, both of them, particularly one of them, has had significant challenges uh, and uh, has overcome them, and, and they're both doing extremely well. Um, so, you know, I can't actually wait to see where they both end up. You know, one's in college, the other's just about to start college. So um, I would think um, that probably is the thing I'm most proud of, yeah. You're quite right too, Paul. Hey, Paul Meacham, thank you so much. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point.